Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hello and welcome back to Belonging, the podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here with another really powerful conversation to share with you on this vast and wide and deep and multi-layered topic that is belonging. So today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Madison Morrigan. So Madison is a life coach, speaker, and a lot of what she shares and coaches on is centered on self-responsibility and full expression. Madison coaches ambitious and creative women to shed layers of old programming, keeping them small, and finally come home to their true selves. And I asked Madison to come on to the podcast because she has a really interesting story that has to do with leaving the evangelical church growing up in a household of narcissistic abuse and coming out as newly queer. And I thought, "Mm, there's probably some really important bits of wisdom that she can share from a really grounded, embodied place around feeling belonging and unbelonging or lack of belonging or false belonging. So we start the conversation with really her definition of sovereignty and this idea that first and foremost, she belongs to herself. And then I ask her to share her story of leaving the evangelical church. She talks about growing up with an alcoholic father who went to prison and then became born again, and how that really got her into a space of being in a radical church. And I'm going to pause right here, actually, because I do want to give a a content warning that we are talking about abuse. We have a mention of suicide and mention of alcohol addiction. So as I just mentioned, a few of those things. So we don't go deep, but it is mentioned. So proceed as you will. So Madison was in a radical church and she spent five years questioning the abuse in that space before she could really leave it. And then she talks about actually leaving the church and processing that trauma. And now having a new relationship to spirituality and God, what that means to her after all of that, and really finding her wholeness. And then she tenderly, sweetly shares about the last two years of her life, discovering that she's queer. She's a queer woman and she's in a relationship with another woman and, and how that coming out didn't feel quite as big as the coming out of the church. And then we jam on how we're noticing in particularly the new age spirituality space that there can be this default to 
rigid belief systems when presented with nuance or when presented with gray areas or the reality of the world not being good or bad, but actually sometimes feeling unfair or being confusing. And that when they're like unhealed or unwell parts of ourselves, which we're all working through, that that default to rigidity is something to look at. And that the either or response to uncertainty stems from traumatic events over many generations, which is inherent in these oppressive systems we live in. And then we have a really interesting conversation about the beneficial uses of shame. Can shame be used? or felt in a beneficial way. Mm, Listen to us talk about that. And then Madison educates really profoundly on narcissistic abuse in our culture. So please stay on to the end because I found that to be super powerful and enlightening, frankly. Another lens to look through when seeing what's emerging in our culture right now, what's being reckoned with what's being grieved, what's being looked at, and to really bring in this lens of narcissistic abuse. I found it very helpful. So, okay, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Madison Morrigan. Okay. When is Mercury retrograde over? The 12th. Oh, Sunday. Yeah, that's soon. They were like, don't make um, any big decisions and don't launch programs like, during this time. And I like did both. So yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's like with this year, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. I've launched during Mercury retrograde. I think it's just about not rushing any decisions. Yeah. You know, and like being open to being like flexible, which is like the lessons of life really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like if things, I mean, you know this, like if things don't go your way, you just like, okay, we're just going to have to pivot here. I think yeah. that's Mercury's like gift. Yeah. What is your Mercury in, in astrology? Do you know? I'll find out right now. Yeah. I need to know this very important information. Going on people who are listening, I'm going on the natal charts app, iPhone app. I think it's like three bucks. And then you can put in your like birth date and time, and then you hit consult your natal chart, and then it'll tell you. So my Mercury's in Leo. Me too. What does that mean? So Leo, I mean, all the planetary energies of Leo would be applied to communication for you. So I'm sure that I'm not an astrologer. I'm sure that someone who's listening knows much more about this than I, but yeah, so the Leo energy is for your house of communication. And I was born with Mercury in retrograde, which apparently also means something about the way that retrograde, you experience it. Also, oh, someone listening. It says you're abrupt, hot-tempered, and you say things frankly, but you're also nice and sympathetic. <laughs> Good. So that's probably like the, what is that, the intention for the conversation? Like, here we are, hot. We're recording this in Mercury retrograde. You are luteal. Yes. If I may. <laughs> the final day of luteal. So, so you're so like tipping over. And you're feeling prickly. Prickly. And I was having technology issues. So we're recording this in a different way than I usually do. And I was getting, I was getting abrupt. Not <laughs> That's interesting. Look at us being compassionate and understanding. Look at that. <laughs> Um, Hi, Madison Morgan. Thank you so much for coming on Belonging. I adore you. Um, Full disclosure, we're in a mastermind together and we've gotten to know each other deeply. And at the time of recording over the past couple months, and I was like, please come on. And you said, yes, thank you. Yeah, we're going to have so much fun. I was, I was really jazzed to get to know you so like so much before this. And yeah, I've like really admired your work for a long time. So it was like one of those like pat myself on the back situations. Whenever you asked me to come on, I was like, yes. I feel really, I feel really good about myself that you asked me. <laughs> yeah, that's like a leo thing too, right? Like, or I don't know, like being a human being thing of like being seen. Yeah. Being asked, it's like, yeah, 
cool. That feels really affirming. I have a stellium in Leo. So I basically, I have a second son in Leo. And then I also have Chiron in Leo. So like the wounded healer is, I'm just dealing, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of Leo. Okay. Um, so I'm like, see me. Yeah. Well, except for I'm, I'm ashamed that I want to be seen, but yeah. <laughs> I'm going to own it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listening can relate to that. Like I'm, I want to be seen so bad, but I feel so much shame around. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we are gonna oh God. We're going to get into shame later because we've been talking about it privately yes. about mm-hmm. that. Okay. So I like to begin most conversations with this question for which there is no wrong answer, uh, which is what do you belong to, Madison? Mm, myself, first. Um, I use the expression belonging to ourselves together a lot to describe my experience of sovereignty. And so I think it's this combination of belonging to myself and then belonging to everyone and everything and the earth and God. Um, and those are kind of all the same thing too. Yeah, uh, yes and kind yes, of answer. Um, <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Can you define sovereignty for us? I usually define sovereignty by saying belonging to ourselves together. Mm-hmm. And really came to that understanding through I know we're going to probably talk about narcissistic abuse and the the like fringes of my story but the, the movement towards sovereignty, well, one, I think sovereignty is innate. We just belong to ourselves. We just are sovereign. We just are powerful. Um, but the remembering of that has been such a big part of my journey. And the remembering that I actually do belong to myself and I'm the authority on myself has been incredibly healing in my journey with codependence, with narcissistic abuse, with evangelicalism. And then just remembering I have a choice because in my healing, in, well, in my trauma, it was often forgetting that I had a choice and forgetting that I was like an individual person with desires and a will and wants. So just reconnecting to all of that, which I just chunk it down and say, belonging to myself together. Hmm. Yeah. So you used the G word. You said God. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, so, which one? <laughs> which one is that? <laughs> Yeah, so we here at Belonging slash Just Me, but in Hearthfire, in deeper community, sort of have this conversation about a conflicted relationship with religion. Mm-hmm. We had our mutual friend, Barbara Eroshina, I had her on maybe a year ago to talk about like rectifying a relationship with patriarchal Christianity and she like <laughs> it was so good and I think she was talking about the retreat you both did in yeah. Hawaii for recovering evangelicals if that's what I can say mm-hmm. and um, I, I do find particularly in Hearthfire some folks come in with like pretty religious upbringings who have realized um, there was just like a lot that went that was not okay in that space, but still wanting a connection to spirit, having things come up around doing it wrong, particularly because I bring a pagan lens to my work of like earth, earth worship or earth connection. And I wasn't brought up in a particularly aggressively religious household. And so I, I'm just so excited to talk to you about being an ex-evangelical and also you use the G word, like you, you do say God, like you do talk about your connection. So I'd love to just hear more about, I don't know your story around that and, and how it brought you to this moment in your life. Yeah. Well, I newly reused the word God. I didn't for a really long time. It was, it just felt terrible to me. Because in, in brief, and I'll, I'll give some more history and context in a second, but whenever I left evangelicalism, it was the, the biggest grief that I'd ever experienced because it felt like God died to me. I mean, so much of my identity, all of my relationships, my marriage at the time, my, what I wanted to do with my life, the schooling I had, everything was wrapped up in my relationship with God and specifically evangelicalism. And so leaving that and deconstructing all of those beliefs and losing most of those relationships, 
it, it was extremely painful. And um, many people who don't go through that can't really understand the kind of absolute confusion whenever you start to, to pick it apart and to parse it out and sift, find yourself amongst it. So I will say this, I was not raised evangelical and that really surprises people because I was so extreme, <laughs> so devout. Um, my mom and my stepdad were both like, they would say, they, I would say culturally Christian, like they celebrated Christmas, but we didn't really go to church unless their marriage was struggling. And they were like, someone invited us to church. We should go join a marriage group. And then it would last for a little while. Then they would stop. Um, my father went to prison when I was eight. And he, he was an alcoholic. And that was part of why he went to prison. And in that time, he became a radical born-again believer in prison. And so I have one side of the family who's like super non-religious, doesn't, we don't do anything religious in the household. And then my dad's side, which my dad was very preachy. He still has a, a micro church that he preaches to those without home every single Sunday. So it was probably, um, it was probably around 12 that I just felt this like desire to connect with God and to connect with uh, the only religion I'd been introduced to was Christianity. And so I started going to church with friends with my dad when he would take me and felt so enamored and captured by this idea that we are good, that God loves us, that the sin isn't who we are. And that was like my understanding of evangelicalism then, like Jesus loves me, like this is a place of acceptance. And my home life was full of narcissistic abuse. And so finding like what they would say is church family felt so good because people were telling me I belonged there. People wanted me there. I kind of had a sparkly-ish personality and that was really like, oh, we want you to be doing front door things. And so I had people really come alongside me and mentor me all through my teen years in a church context where I didn't feel like I had that at home. And so on top of feeling really connected to God and really not feeling connected and seen at home, it, it just covered so many of my needs for healthy attachment. And then I, I moved away to college and got involved. I moved into the Bible Belt and got involved in a really radical church in a really radical community. And because I hadn't learned discernment, self-trust, having a sense of self basically at all growing up in that kind of environment, I really didn't question the abuse dynamics in the churches I started getting involved in. And I got married really young at 20 in these dynamics, no sex till marriage kind of context. And it didn't occur to me until I would say like five years in that something was wrong. Like I would, I would start getting like severe anxiety and then chronic acne and all of these like physical symptoms would start coming up. And slowly as I was questioning and saying like, well, why, why do we believe gay people go to hell? Why do like, why, like, why can't we talk about this? And it was so much circular reasoning. And also because I wasn't raised in the church, I kind of had the wrong female personality <laughs> to be a Christian. And so I just like, just accidentally kept pushing up against the cultural norms in this group until I left and then had my, my faith unraveled. And that's whenever I saw, it wasn't until I was out that I really saw how I was repeating abuse dynamics by being a part of it. Wow. Okay. So, wow. Thank you <laughs> so much there. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I've just always been very curious about false belonging and cults and, and churches and spaces where people feel like compelled to follow the rules or ethos or edicts as a way to maintain a sense of belonging, which I would categorize as false because it requires, you know, maybe not, maybe it requires a shutting down a part of yourself or a belief or following this certain way of being. Um, and so I am very curious about the leaving part. Oh, devastating. My little young self was devastated. Like yes. how fucking scary is yeah. that moment of choosing yourself. I remember Barbara was like, I had to risk, I had to lose all my belonging. 
And I was yeah. like, Oh, I can really see that. Like to choose, to choose to step through the fire or whatever, you know, metaphor works for you. And to be like, I could be alone for the rest of my life, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but which never happens. Right. But it's, mm-hmm. it's that feeling of like, I'm leaving everything. Yeah. I think interestingly enough, I became a coach shortly. So I had gone through my, my church was very against therapy. And so there's, there's these slow awakenings. I didn't know what was happening, but I, one of my siblings attempted suicide slow, right after I graduated from college. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had plans to get a master's in sex therapy and to work with focus on the family, which anyone who's ex-evangelical knows focus on the family. They're a very conservative pro-life organization that like focuses on keeping the traditional family model. And I wanted to like end pornography with my sex therapy work. So that was like my trajectory. And when that sibling of mine attempted suicide, it really startled me that there was a lot of stuff that I was seeking to help others with through becoming a therapist that I had not ever looked at in myself because therapy was wrong in the church. You just, you don't have enough faith. You're not praying it away. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really. That's really wild to me. (laughs) Yeah. So I started going to trauma therapy, which was applied kinesiology. And it was with a Christian therapist. And six months through that process, I also decided to become a life coach because I realized I actually didn't think that becoming a therapist was the healthiest choice for me in, in that season. So I um, started to, be, to train to become a life coach. And within six months of trauma therapy, it was like, I have chills thinking about it. It was like a, the genie was out of the bottle, meaning like I my connection and what I had been using Christianity for even like, like I was devout, like fasting every Monday, reading my Bible every day, journaling, just like very, very devout. It didn't matter how much I did it. The connection was gone with it. I couldn't connect. I, and the more I was becoming well and healing, the less I was able to connect in this environment. And it was extremely disheartening. And then I became a coach, which numerous people and all of my mentors warned me about not becoming a coach, not becoming, you know, brainwashed by liberal self-help and, you know, all, all of the things like people sitting me down, telling me it's my sinful flesh and my pride, leaving me away from God for wanting to be in my own business. Women shouldn't have, you know, just all of the things that you think, surely people don't actually think this way, you know, like being shouted at in a Panera over a Bible study, all of it. And yeah, people are really intense. <laughs> and I was just like, the more I talk to people from around the world as a coach and the healthier I become, the less this connects to me. And I find that odd. And the more I talk to people, I, I, under, I understand and see that they have the same Holy Spirit as me. I, I can't, you know, the, the disconnection between that and the church, I was told I couldn't be free without Christ, yet I'm seeing all these people be free. And at the same time, all this was happening, a local mega church that I had actually started going to because they were a little bit more free than the Baptist church I was in, they were passing out signs to repeal a law that transgender people can use the bathroom of their choice. And there was a vote to repeal this law. Um, And my church was like heading up this. And I was like, I was so viscerally disturbed. We never went back to that church. Um, we found a house church and it was, it was a full year before I ended up leaving. So it was a full year of confessing my doubts, telling people in my Bible studies, telling my mentors and eventually hiring a coach who was non-religious. And I was like, just help me talk about this because everyone I talk to is either afraid of me or afraid for me. And I need someone who doesn't give a fuck about what I believe because all of the belonging is conditional on believing the same things in those contexts, even divisive against other Christians. So it was like that church believes in speaking in tongues and we don't. So like you're either with us or you're with them. And so this belonging based on shared belief in doing everything right, it was, it was incredibly difficult. And I think the most difficult part was actually that my partner at the time, my husband, he didn't agree with me on any of it. Mm-hmm. And so it, there were intense conversations of like, oh, like 
tell me you believe I'm going to hell. <laughs> like I just went for, went for these intense conversations. And eventually, slowly, probably over the process of three years, was able to feel confident enough to even share that information publicly online to my family, as if it wasn't obvious, you know, because there are like telltale signs of sinful behavior. But it was so much grief and so much figuring out what belonging meant and what could I, could I just be in a liminal space? and have like my entire identity, future, marriage, all of my relationships just dissolve into nothing. And I didn't have close family ties. And so I think that was really difficult is it really, it caused me to confront what I hadn't confronted and why I chose the church was, which was that I didn't feel belonging in my family of origin. So it leaving Christianity actually opened up so much healing for, and which is ongoing with my family still, but it opened up so much opportunity for me to find wholeness. And just in the last year and a half, circle back and start to pray again and start to connect to what I call God, non-gendered God again. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. There's an added layer here, which is you have divorced your husband and you've come out as queer. Yeah. You have a beautiful relationship with the woman. Yeah. Who knew? I, I <laughs> certainly didn't. <laughs> I didn't know any of that consciously um, mm-hmm. when I left. So that, that was news to me over the last two years. And um I was honestly like, dang it. Now everyone from the church is going to think that the reason why I left is because I was gay yeah. and, and that their systems actually aren't totally patriarchal and abusive, <laughs> but I'm let just, I'm allowing it to be what it is. It's been surprisingly really easy to come out after having gone through that deconstruction process and like leaving Christianity was a bigger coming out than saying I was queer. Oh, wow. I hear that. It made way for like the delights of life. One of which is being queer. Like, yes. One of which is like, I'm a, all of these things are allowed now and yeah. I'm not wrong. And, and I've noticed that my friends who came out as a queer person while in evangelicalism have so, such a different experience of internalized homophobia. Not that I don't, but mm. the way that they experienced the reaction within those contexts, I really didn't have to deal with because I'd already created safe spaces in my life. And so I'm so grateful for that, but I know that that's not the same situation for every person who comes out as queer, especially after leaving evangelicalism. Hmm. Right. So, okay, so the path into evangelicalism was your father. Mm-hmm. the patriarch mm-hmm. and then okay and then the path and then the path way out okay that's I find that really interesting so your relationship may I ask about your relationship with your family now you yeah a little bit mm-hmm. but like is he still evangelical oh yeah oh yeah he's still very he's still the only one who is evangelical I have six siblings and I've had five stepmoms. So I've had a lot of family. And out of all of them, he's still the most radical and the most intense about his beliefs. And I have a lot of compassion for that. I mean, he's an extremely intelligent person. And so we can actually have really interesting conversations because he can follow and we can keep up with each other. And he's not going to change his mind. He uses... evangelicalism as a a way of coping with so much that is generational that's unwilling to be looked at and I it's no surprise to me that people who fall into and this happens also in the online space you might you might notice that some people who don't have healed relationships with their body with the earth with their family with a sense of root safety 
use new age spirituality come completely out of their body and then collapse into fundamentalism um, because there's no, there's no safety. There's no groundedness. And I'm, I'm sure you see this. <laughs> I'm deeply fascinated. Yeah. And it's not necessarily and, fundamentalist Christian. Sometimes it's fundamentalist in a myriad of other ways, <laughs> but still this like gripping and tightening and holding and this like perfectionistic self-help or falling into, I'm going to say falling, choosing, collapsing. I don't know, going back to a, what I would say is and what Richard Rohr, who's one of my favorite teachers would say is like the first house and the first house is so rigid but Richard Rohr is a beautiful Franciscan priest. And he talks about how there's three houses in life. The first is the fundamentalist house. And that's, that's developmentally like a child and everything is pristine and perfect. And there are rules and it's exactly as it should be. And in order for development to occur, that house has to burn down and you have to move into the second house, which is, I don't think he says exploration, but it's you're more liberal house where like there aren't as many um rules there aren't as any constructs of safety and and rigidity and then eventually there becomes a third house and it's the house of the mystic where there's integration and wholeness and you can draw upon the tools the first house built for you but they're not they're no longer dogmatic there's mm. less freedom in the third house and I find a lot of compassion for my dad in that there, there wasn't opportunities for healing from his alcoholism and from shame, speaking of shame, of some of the mistakes he had made. And whenever you are taught that you are disgusting and unworthy and you hate yourself, then it only makes sense to, have, to feel like you need a savior. Oh my gosh. I think that... <laughs> speaks to politics like I think that speaks to so yes. much I mean my frame is usually like unwell ancestors or um just like seeing the patterns of um abuse of harm of addiction that have been passed down through the generations particularly you know like our my you know my grandparents were world war ii you know and my, and my grandfather came back and from from flying planes over Japan. Wow. His brother died and like, he never spoke of it ever, wow. you know? And like that had impacts on the line. Yeah, of course. You know, and like alcoholism and sexual abuse in the church outside the, you know, there's all these things that have been perpetuated because we live in these harmful systems, <laughs> you know, and the desire for good, bad, the binary, like, black or white, like just like the savior, the, the dad, like the father, capital F father coming to save us. It's so tempting when we feel uncertainty and unsafety. And I think the, the beauty through healing work, which is scary and hard <laughs> and yes. all those things is I, I think it's, you can embrace the both and the nuance, the spirality, the cyclicality of life, you know, the, the, that death comes when it comes and, and all of it. And that it can feel unfair at times. Like there's just like a deeper acceptance of the uncertainty of life and that there is beauty in that nuance. And that takes some work. And I love that you have such compassion for your father and that experience. And I'm just always trying to call that in because it can make me feel really angry. <laughs> yeah. I think my experience with evangelicalism and then my experience growing up in a narcissistic abusive environment, both have given me so much context to what is happening in our culture right now. Mm. Mind you, I've coupled that with a lot of healing. <laughs> so it's not like just because I went through those situations that I have this context. I've been really doing a lot of work to heal my attachments and to heal my body and to learn what right relationship even is since I wasn't modeled it growing up, I was, I didn't even probably see a healthy relationship until the past two years. So I think knowing like when people are, people say things about pro-life or when people say things about, about the right-wing Christians as a whole, which mm -hmm. is really coming up, right? It's an election year. Like 
-hmm. this is in, and there's so much more than just that happening. I feel like I understand the level of so much, not just insecurity in self, but insecurity, like to be on earth, to not know, to live in the gray. Like I've been in all of this. I used to hold all of those beliefs. I used to think being queer was wrong. I used to think that pro-life was the only way. And so having held all of those beliefs very dearly and then having to actually evaluate why I held them and go through that process while losing relationships, it puts you in a place of like just radical compassion because mm. the people who were honestly, I think the worst to me were the most afraid. And mm. it was obvious that they were, they were afraid. Like they, they couldn't even talk to me be- without their own projections coming up and their own fear of me going to hell. And it's like, well, I'm not afraid of that because I don't believe it exists. You know, like that doesn't, it's not real to me, mm-hmm. but that is often like, the thing that gets stated. So it, I don't always have compassion. I'm sometimes still very angry, but I've moved to a more compassionate place knowing that I changed my mind and I wasn't, no one canceled me along the way. I was definitely called higher, but I changed my mind and I'm really thankful for the couple of friends who stuck with me through that journey because it was not pretty. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I noticed that the idea of changing your mind can compromise that sense of safety and belonging. And what you've come to is like, my first question to you is like, I belong to myself. And it's, it's like, if you can really do that work, which requires finding support, you know, then changing your mind feels safer. Yeah. Which yeah. helps, which helps with these greater conversations around fragility and you know causing harm whether you intend it or not like to grow is we need to be able to change our minds and we need to be able to um, expand our perspectives and i i love that you were like artfully prepared through a really intense experience (laughs) for that yeah it's given me a really beautiful opportunity to hold really interesting conversations, really life-changing conversations right now in what, in what we're culturally going through, just this time of initiation, transition, uprising, um, and just vast uncertainty. And a, a lot of people who haven't had to go through a death to an entire life, an entire belief system and identity, a lot of people have, but I, I pray for them that they are subtle <laughs> and not like collapsing your entire belief system and community. But if it does happen to you that that's the case and you survive it, there is a resiliency that just creates inner safety. And it doesn't feel good. There's been so much grief, but I feel like I trust myself to do and to go through so many more difficult things because of those experiences. And yeah, it makes me really grateful. I've thought about all of those things so much during this summer and what we're going through with the uprising and with the pandemic doesn't make it all feel comfortable, but. No, but, oh, I just released again during the time of this recording, which is very different from when this is published. I just released <laughs> an episode with Rachel Rice who talked about comfort versus shelter think that's what she said yeah and how if we prioritize comfort that's actually not actually building a deeper connection to each other and to our resilience as we need shelter and I was like oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah my girlfriend has teachers these two mentors that live on a farm in Arkansas and it is rough I mean, they work the land. They have people there who they're teaching and training most months out of the year. And they've just devoted their life to service. And they, last time I was there, were sharing with me how disconnected they feel most people are from the reality of the world. And they're like, nature is violent. Like, I don't know what world you're living in, but nature like doesn't give a fuck. And I have been thinking about that and the white supremacy, white right to comfort 
And because I have felt comfort and safety as the same thing for so long and realizing, and she said shelter, I, I've equated comfort and safety because I thought of it as a psychological thing. Sure. Um, yeah. But the idea that comfort and safety are not the same thing has helped so much. And it's something that I, I continue to try to, to talk about. And it, honestly, I find it to be a really difficult conversation to have. Yes. With a lot of people. And so I don't know what else to say besides for it is often challenging to have these conversations um, in a time where people are often demanding safety, but that safety actually that they're speaking to is comfort. And you're like, well, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, who's to say, yeah. right. Who's to say. And often in those conversations, there's like a deeper fragility or trauma or yeah. Yeah. I think this is the perfect time to bring in shame. Yeah, <laughs> right? Our friend Shane. Yes. Cause we actually had conflicting views about the usefulness of shame. Yeah. I'm not sure what my view is yet. I, I've heard, I've read enough think pieces and I think I've heard, I'm going to mess this up. I think it was for the wild podcast. It was an interview. We're going to put it in the show notes because Caitlin is amazing and we'll figure that out. It's an interview with like an Irish man um, who was really talking, speaking to like the Irish experience of colonization and him and Ayanna Young, the, the host were talking about beneficial uses of shame. And I was like, whoa, shame in like the life coaching world, which you and I are both from, is just like a bad, <laughs> just sort of at least taught to me was not useful, uh, something that shuts you down, a way to um, assert dominance over someone, like just really not helpful. And for me, I always sort of use it in like body or food because that was sort of my path. Um, and then I heard these like, people, I, I was like, I feel respect for you talking about how shame when implemented in maybe an ethical way, uh, is a way to pattern interrupt harm. And that shame is, is something we can survive feeling and can create behavior change for the liberation of all. So we were engaging on that. And, um, I'd like to know where you, where you sit with that now, because I'm, I still like, don't love shame, but I hear what people yeah. are saying. I guess what I'm really curious about, I love the idea of like the shock, the pattern interruption. I think of that as a conscious shock and how having shocks to our system can wake us up and uncomfortable feelings. Because I guess what I really wonder is shame as a tool for manipulation being different than shame being an experience you were having. Okay. Shame is an emotion. Sometimes I feel it and other people aren't even there. They have, no one has made me feel shame. Uh -huh. I'm experiencing shame. And I have seen people be publicly shamed oh, with intent to shame to cause behavior change, to lead to conformity, AKA false belonging. Yeah. And yeah. this was, this is something that happened growing up for me. Like embarrassment is something I'm really afraid of. And so like a big thing that I have to work through a big like fear I have to work through to share my work publicly is the fear of being publicly embarrassed, publicly wrong. So I've spent a lot of time being hypervigilant um, because of so many years of embarrassment and shame being a tool for behavior change. And so I feel really cautious about whenever I see shame you like being forcefully used um, because that feels like cult like behavior to me. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think that someone experiencing shame by being called out, called higher confronted is something that we have to protect people from either. And so I, maybe what I'm more concerned about is manipulation yeah. and intent to cause harm than I am about the experience of shame as an emotion. Aha. Uh -huh. Right. Shame is powerful. Yeah. Used for good or evil kind of a feeling. That's what I'm getting from you. Yeah. I just in my personal experience of like, working to decolonize my whiteness and like 
remember my own indigeneity and call in a deeper sense of allyship and um, work to lessen my fragility, shame, shame, I can't, it has to be there. Like it has to be there for me. Mm -hmm. And if I just say shame is bad, then I, then I can't do that work, which is what I heard you saying. And so I wonder how shame, if shame can be used as a tool without manipulation, I'm sure there's someone out there who's like, Madison and Becca, yes, here it is. But like you and I unraveling it right now. Yeah, like the artful call out, Mm. you know? I think what's interesting is I actually don't think it's anyone's job to try to evoke the feeling of anyone. Like I I guess I, Uh, I just don't subscribe to that. Mm. as a a useful way to live. And I think that's probably because I've done so much work on myself of detaching from the emotional experience of others, like minding my own business is my healing path. And when is it appropriate to lean in and have a conversation knowing that 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 person might have an emotional experience, that experience they're having isn't mine to manage or be responsible for. The, The act of being someone who's willing to have those conversations is my responsibility. And so I, I guess I'm always working on unhooking from managing the emotional experience of others. And so I don't know that I would try to cause someone to feel shame or to try to cause someone to change, rather like try to open a conversation and allow whatever experience they had arise, be it shame, cool, I can trust them with that. I don't know if that's right, like the right way, but that is um, how I've navigated a lot of conversations like this. And a lot of them have gone well. Yeah, I can see the difference between um, saying like, you should be ashamed of yourself versus have you thought about the harmful impact of this behavior? Right, and then they have a choice and their their experience is whatever it is. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If they feel shame, they are capable of experiencing their shame because I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is, again, like I, I didn't listen to the podcast on the useful benefits of shame and like how to use it as a tool. That's the language you're using, using it as a tool. I think as an individual, I can use my shame as a tool. I don't know if I can invoke the shame on others to use shame as a tool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That yeah. feels, that feels sticky to me. Yeah. No, you bring up a good point of like, you shall feel this. It's like yeah. really on us or is it more about pointing out what we feel and what we see as impact? Mm-hmm. I've had people tell me I should feel shame for things that I didn't feel shame for and saw that my behavior was, not working. And it was still a very productive conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well now I'm feeling more in the camp of like feeling shame doesn't necessarily need to be a quote bad thing. It's what you do with it. Yeah. Shame is neutral as a feeling. Yeah. But I find it still a little like nerve wracking to try to evoke someone to feel bad about themselves as a means of behavior change because, and, and also we, we have people that are grandiose and we have people who exist in shame. And I in general have not seen a lot of behavior change from people I know who exist in the grandiose narcissistic embodiment. Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't know that like th- there might need to be some come down um, because if you look at it like the narcissist codependent, I would definitely, like I have embodied the codependent, which just exists in shame, which is in also like in Christianity phrases like your, your good works are of filthy rags, filthy rags being dirty period rags, which was considered culturally unclean. And so these are references to your core identity being that of shame in, in mainstream Whoa. evangelical Christianity. Yes. 
And so that's why you need a savior because you actually can't approach God because you're so unworthy. And so for me, shame is so tied up in that, Uh that I have to identify myself as like my true essence is good and I will cause harm. How do I reconcile that? Mm. Mm. And I think you're bringing an important perspective for folks who do have like that sort of religious background, who, who, in my opinion, there may need to be some like deep change and look at harm from those institutions. Yeah. And so it might be who and the what, as far as shame being beneficial. Yeah. And again, with how, I don't know how we cause someone to feel these things, because if you are in a narcissistic, grandiose embodiment of yourself, then can someone make you feel shame? Some of these people don't, don't experience that. Accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I find it would be kind of like using the tools that they use against them, except for it's not harming them. And on a micro level, this is in our families, on a community level, this is in our churches and our local governments. And then we're seeing it on a mass scale for us in the U.S. or the U.S. government. And it's narcissistic abuse. It's racism. It's white supremacy. It is narcissistic abuse. And with narcissistic abuse, there is a codependent. And so I think it's worth assessing the dynamic of narcissist codependent in the family dynamics of that and all of the relationship with shame. Hmm. Mm. So can you can you break down a little bit more narcissistic abuse? Yes. So I'm trying to think of what there's so this is a whole because you just like micro macro it. You just micro macro yeah. it and I was like, oh wow. Okay, there's something important here to see. Yes. So right now everyone's loving Glennon Doyle's book. Yes. So this is a, this is a, untamed. Thank God for untamed. So many people who like haven't talked to me about my coming out have messaged me and they were like, oh, I get it. Okay, cool. Glenn and <laughs> Doyle. Like, yeah. I was like, could have been cool if you like messaged me last year, but I'm glad that Glennon is making so much money off this beautiful book that she wrote. Your support is great. Thank you. Okay. So this book is really beautiful because it's unveiling for a lot of people who hadn't seen patriarchy for what it is, especially in the church. And patriarchy is a narcissistic, abusive system Mm. that uses grandiosity, gaslighting, basically crazy making. And a lot of women don't even know that they're a part of it. So I, I have friends who are in Christian communities who are like, what you're talking about with patriarchy doesn't apply to me. I don't feel oppressed. That doesn't exist to me. And that was my reality for a really long time because I actually had identified with all of the things that my abusers had said about me. So I actually didn't realize I was being abused because mm-hmm. of how gaslit I was. Mm-hmm. And then I developed a gaslighting relationship with myself. So mm-hmm. my own I don't believe them. My own gut intuitions, that is incorrect. My desires, wrong. My feelings, not to be trusted. My heart, literally, scripture, shouldn't trust it. Your heart will lead you astray. So you have an entire religion based on gaslighting and abuse and telling you that you're unworthy without adhering to a system. And I'm not saying that Christ is wrong God is wrong. There aren't benefits to ritual. I think that there absolutely are. But American Christianity is a patriarchal system. And a patriarchal system is a narcissistic system because there has to be an oppressor for it to work. There has to be someone with the most power. We know as, as you and I, women, what bodies are more worthy in our culture. Mm-hmm. Ours aren't the most worthy. Ours aren't the ones that get the, the most free will and free choice in our culture. And so I don't know if I'm even answering your question, but to, to kind of go in on patriarchy, because most people are like, I get it, patriarchy. Like we're, we're talking about it. Thank you, Glennon Doyle. As the one, I think people are starting to see, oh, we've been gaslit out of our own knowing mm-hmm. for a really long time. And so patriarchy kind of being this thing that we can approach now 
this is happening in our family systems. This is happening in our community systems. It's happening at work. It's happening in the medical field. It's happening with white supremacy. So Terry Cole is someone that I would recommend if you really want to research what is narcissistic abuse. She teaches on it beautifully. Like if you have a narcissistic mother, if you have a narcissistic family, what to do if you're in a narcissistic relationship. Um, so I would recommend her teachings because she teaches about it just so much more beautifully than I could explain. But I think understanding that all of these systems from the micro to the macro, including a lot of our religions are rooted in narcissistic abuse as a through line. Mm. And we're kind of having a reckoning with that right now, culturally. So self-trust self-belonging. Wow. Whoa. And then I just, and I see how narcissistic abuse can play out in our own bodies, in our own psyches, in our, mm-hmm. our own inner thoughts and landscapes. And then in what relationships do we have the power dynamic that allows us to embody the grandiose narcissist? And in what relationships do we have less power in which we embody the codependent? And I think, or unworthy or shame. And where do we toggle between the two it's been really interesting in some relationships. I have amazing boundaries because I hold more power. Mm. Interesting. Right. And so in some relationships, I have shame for setting boundaries. I have less power, perceived power. My power is, is intact, but I have pr- less agency to use the power in those relationships. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. That's a really powerful frame to look at all of this just from like a deeper sense. I tend to just like default to the system, but if there's like their overarching, the power dynamics that um, pervade all these systems, all these harmful systems that you can take to the, from the macro to the micro that you can see playing out in a relationship or you can see playing out even in a thought that that's fortifying, I think for just wanting to feel agency to shift the dynamic and not feel so stuck in like something that feels shitty. Yeah. And realizing like, if I no longer subscribe, I mean, mind you, we're always, we're deprogramming constantly because we were raised in this, all of these systems. We were raised inside of them. Once you start seeing it, you know, you get so far. And I was like, I've deconstructed evangelical Christianity. I see the light. And then I'm like, oh God, internalized racism. Fuck. I have so much work to do. Um, But it is really helpful to start unidentifying that those thoughts aren't actually like they're a thought I've subscribed to, but it doesn't actually have to be me because I don't have to be a system. I don't have to, I don't have to engage in this way anymore. And it, for me, that's where I unhook from shame whenever I notice myself in these behaviors, because I'm like, that's actually not me. And now that I have a conscious choice, I'm going to move away from that behavior because I don't want to have power over or be power under. I'm just going to live from being a person. Yeah. Right. Innate belonging, innate worthiness. Yeah, a communal creature of this earth and like a, a being with heart and yeah, just unhooking completely from one side or other of that coin. Yeah. Madison, so thank you so much for this. I feel like, whoa, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Meta, whoa. <laughs> this is no, my really? favorite thing. Yeah, I and you're just so clear with it. And I'm I feel very grateful for you sharing your journey and your history. Uh, and I know just from knowing you personally, like you're just living in integrity as best you can and living it out loud. It's it's just such um a pleasure to receive your wisdom and your story. So thank you so much for being here. Um, where should people go to like get more of this goodness? Yes. So Madison Morgan is my name. And so Instagram, you can find me that way. It's Morgan three syllables. I've noticed recently people are like, Oh, Morgan, like the first name it's Morgan, Morgan, like the goddess. So goddess. Yes. So, um, M O R R I G A N. And so you can just madisonmorgan.com, Madison Morgan on Instagram. I also have a podcast called Everything Belongs. And so, us and our belonging, we just love it so much. Yeah. So, you can oh, find no, me there. That's too. the name of it. That's the best name. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yes. So everything belongs. I belong to myself and we all belong together. And, you know, it means sovereignty, but I think it's more fun than naming the podcast sovereignty. So. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Check that out in your feeds. Everything belongs. Okay. Well, yes, thank you again for being here with me. I appreciate you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.